0: You are tuned into to Pusher Mania's podcast. My name is Matt Sanzala, and I'm here in Austin, Texas, connecting with a great, dear friend of mine for many years, a legend in the independent music world, specifically a pioneer in the independent hip-hop world, ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Fiona Bloom.
1: Hello, hello. What an intro. How you hey. doing, Matt? <laughs> Man, I'm
0: doing good. I was just thinking, you know, we've been trying to get this together for a minute, and, uh, I was thinking about people outside of the box, you know, like one of the things about podcasting right now is there's a lot of people doing podcasts and, you know, I've been doing interviews for many years and I've had about enough. I'll talk to rappers, but, uh, you know, everybody's talking to the same people about the same things. And I'm thinking back to like people who've had an impact on not only my life, but on music in general. And, And a lot of people don't know the people behind the scenes and i know for sure that you have a very rich history in this you were around in the days uh you know you're you're a pioneer in this in this game man i mean i remember back in the 90s when we first met and i first heard of you you were like one of the main people really pushing that independent hip-hop movement
1: yes it's true (laughs) not a lot of people know that but yeah yeah
0: Tell me about those early days. I mean, like, where did you get your start? People know you as a publicist, but I know you've done a lot more than just publicity.
1: Yes, I have. Goodness. Well, my start, I guess, goes back to the A, the A-Town, Atlanta. Um, I was a DJ on the radio there. I guess a lot of people don't know that. Um, I had a hip-hop show on WRFG 89.3. Right. And that was in 1992, 1991, 92, um, prior to that, I was on WRAS at Georgia state university. Uh, and that's sort of where I got my training in radio, college radio. So I got into community radio, started a hip hop show called world party and it became really popular, um, amongst a lot of college students, especially at W, you know, at Clark at Morehouse, Spellman. I was really, uh, sort of like the talk of the town there. And they had no idea that behind the voice and the music was this, white English chick, everybody would meet me in person and be like, oh my God, I thought you was a sister. I thought you were black. Oh my God. You know? And I was like, well, you know, they're like, nah, you're still cool. Yo, I love your show. So I just started spinning hip hop. I don't even know where it came out of. I would just, you know, go to the clubs late at night. I would just mingle with the people, the community. And I just started falling in love with hip hop, you know, because right. prior to my life in Atlanta, I was actually a classically trained concert pianist. I grew up in London. I played Ravel, Rachmaninoff, Bach, Beethoven, Chopin. That was my life from four years old till about 22. So between 22 and 27, when I came to Atlanta, went to Georgia State University, I kind of rebelled. I rebelled from my classical training, from my discipline background, my arduous lifestyle. I just wanted a complete makeover. So the whole hip-hop thing kind of just fell on my lap just from mixing with people, going out, being in the clubs, listening to music. Um, And that's how I started playing all this hip hop. I kind of fell in love with the beats. I fell in love with, you know, the two turntables and a microphone. It just kind of took me over. And um, everything from there was like urban culture immersed, like head deep in. And my show started becoming really, really popular. And every time uh, artists would come through town, you know, like Too Short or... George Clinton or The Far Side or Source of Mischief or, you know, Snoop or any of these artists, they would come on my show. So I would interview them and, you know, they they loved it. They loved me. They loved what I was playing. And next thing you know, I started promoting shows. I started promoting hip hop. And one of my first hip hop shows in Atlanta that I promoted was Fat Joe. You mm. remember when he put out Fat Joe the Gangster and he had that song, you got to flow, Joe. You yeah, got of course. A flow. That was the single I played the crap out of that single. And since I was the only one in Atlanta playing it because nobody else down South wanted to play a, you know, a big cat from the Bronx that Mm -hmm. was called Fat Joe. You know what I mean? So with that, you know, um, I went to a club and I said, listen, I've got this artist, you know, he's blowing up on the radio down here on my show. Everybody keeps calling and requesting this song. I'd like to bring him here to your venue. You know, let's do a show together. Because, Fat Joe's people kept saying, hey, you know, we want to come down to Atlanta. We want to do a show. So with that, he was my first artist that I brought to Atlanta. And, you know, it was pretty good. So what we ended up doing was he came down two days early, came on my show. I took him down to, you know, do promotion, hit him, you know, took him to retail outlets, took him to, you know, other clubs. And we just did a lot of promotion. And I would say the show was pretty good. We didn't sell it out, but we did maybe... About 60% full. He was really happy with it. And next thing you know, I started doing other shows. I started bringing other cats down there. And just from there, it kind of, you know, trickled into this whole party promoter, DJ, uh, radio personality that I became in Atlanta. And the reason why that stopped was because, uh, I guess, EMI Records, the president at the time, Daniel Glass, took note of what I was doing. He would come down because he'd signed... Dallas Austin, he'd signed Joy, he had signed Arrested Development, another artist called Follow For Now. He had a lot of business in Atlanta. And I was playing all those cats. I knew Speech, I knew Joy, I knew Dallas, I knew all those cats because they would always come on my show, they'd always see me at parties. So with that said, you know, Daniel Glass would come down to Atlanta and finally he was like, hey, you want to come to New York? You want to do this in New York? You want to work for us? And I, at, the, at the time, Matt, I know this sounds crazy, but I didn't even realize record labels. I wasn't even thinking about record labels. All I knew, I was such a music fan and I love radio. I love parties and promoting parties and, you know, being out sort of just pushing music that I didn't even think about the the label side. Like I didn't think, you know, I'd heard of Arista, you know, I'd heard of Sony, I'd heard of CBS. I knew about the labels, but I didn't know enough to be like, yes, I want to be in the record industry. You know what I mean? I never wanted to do that. That was never my dream. My dream was always to be a musician or to be a radio personality. I didn't really know life after that. So I kind of took a chance and said, you know what? Sure. Why not? So I basically packed up my bags, moved to New York and started at EMI as the national marketing manager. And guess what my first project was?
0: Vanilla Ice
1: no i actually didn't do that one <laughs> my first project was emr was uh, gang stars hard to earn
0: oh man nice what
1: a what a what an album to get my teeth uh wet and sink my whole you know everything into what are you what working with
0: al- marcus morton
1: yes i worked with marcus morton of course i did because I, I did radio
0: in houston at the same time i did radio from 91 to 94 in houston on kpft at the same time and that was quite a quite a fun time to be doing that sort of thing because it, it was similar to where, you know, commercial radio in Houston was really playing, you know, the big songs, commercial songs. They might play the Ghetto Boys. They started playing UGK in, like, 92, 93 and things like that. But there was no Fat Joe and and, and Farside. Well, Farside got on a little later. Farside broke through.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But that was
0: a fun time. And there was such a community of people back then who were doing college radio and, and the college radio promotions people and all that. Like, it's so funny to be on Facebook now and to see, like, guys we knew back then still, and yourself and myself, still plugging away in this music business. It's crazy.
1: Yes, it is. It is. We're lifers, though, you know. So, so when I moved up to EMI and did the gang star thing, oh my God. I mean, I really was kind of sw- swimming in the deep end, really, and, and barely treading water because I had no background in the record business whatsoever, no background in music business. My background was purely music, purely pushing and purely being on the radio. So I learned, you know, the hard way and I wouldn't say anyone really stopped to sort of train me. Mm -hmm. So that's why I said I was really in the deep end. But I learned a lot as I went um, and winged a lot of it, you know, and a lot of trial and error. But the beauty was, you know, I got really cool with, you know, Keith at the time, Guru. And then with that, I also had other projects like Diggable Planets was another one of my projects. Mm -hmm. And then some smaller acts like the Soul Sonics but the cool thing about the Soul Sonics was a group from L.A., kind of like an acid jazz group. That's what they called them at the time.
2: Because mm-hmm.
1: in 1994, I guess acid jazz was really breaking through, you know, because you had companies like Giant Step that were really making a ton of, you know, noise with that sort of genre. So the cool thing about being with Soul Sonics was, I don't know if you remember this back in 1994, but the Fugees came out with their their first album.
2: Yep. And
1: Queen Latifah had, um, I think it was All Hail the Queen, I think it was that album, and whatever it was, it was her tour. The Fugees were opening, and the Soul Sonics was in the middle. So I was on the road with the groups seeing the Fugees for the very first time. Right. And we did like 25 dates with the Fugees, so I actually got to know Pras pretty well. You know, I didn't really chat that much with Lauren or um, Wyclef, but, you know, but I did see the whole beginnings of the Fugees blowing up and kind of how – you know, from seeing them from phase one, phase two, phase three, and being on the road actually got me a lot of my, um, a lot of the knowledge and a lot of the street marketing background that I came to do for other labels after EMI. So it was a real learning curve and a great, uh, you know, ground for me to kind of break bread and, you know, meet all people on the road from like the local radio and TV and video outlets and record stores and tattoo parlors in every market. You know, I did 25 mm-hmm. markets with the Fuji, Soul Sonics and Queen Latifah. So with that in 1994, you know, my Rolodex was really starting to build and mm-hmm. I stayed in touch with all those people because a lot of those regionals became nationals. A lot of those people that started those, you know, salons or radio shows back then now national managers at record labels or that they've got their own big, you know, marketing firms, because, you know, that was 20 years ago. A lot's happened in 20 years. Sure. So, you know, those were really, really exciting times. And then after EMI, you know, my year at EMI was, it was my tenure, I should say not tenure, but my, my life at EMI was very short lived because I was really only there for a year. That was pretty much all I could stomach <laughs>
2: because, mm-hmm.
1: you know, it's a, it's a corporation at the end of the day. It's a corporation. And all they really cared about was record sales, you know, record sales. And they had to look at, you know, who was bringing in the money. And for me, I was doing, you know, local micro marketing, street marketing, local micro marketing that at the end of the day really didn't move the needle, didn't really push the way they needed things to push. So they kind of dissolved my job. You know, they kind of let a bunch of us go. And that was sort of the demise of EMI anyway, because so after 1995, 96, EMI started kind of withering away anyway. And- right. Well, that
0: was a good time for you to get, obviously, it was a very good time for you to get away from the majors with your uh, – the education you received from working with them because a revolution pretty much started right then. Like an independent yes, hip hop revolution really started in New York at that moment. And yes, again, on the West Coast too and all over. But really, what was happening in New York in those days was pretty incredible.
1: Yes. So I stayed a little bit in touch with Keith, you know, with Guru. I, I was never really tight with Premiere, but, you know, Guru was always my guy, you know, and I hit him up from time to time. He used to come to my parties. But when I left EMI, it was kind of a little bit of a dark moment because part of me is like, do I go back to Atlanta and get back in the glory days of being a DJ again and a promoter? Because I had a really big goodbye party. I didn't know. I didn't tell you this, but, you know, before I moved to New York and at the tail end of leaving Atlanta... They gave me a huge send-off. And Outkast performed, Escape performed, Little John was the DJ. Wow. You know, this is 1993, December the 30th. Little John, Little John was the DJ. Outkast, Escape, Dallas Austin MC'd, uh Pebbles was there. I mean, Man. oh my God, L.A. Reed. Well, I, mean, I mean, the list, the list, mayor, the list the goes, mayor, goes on. And on the and mayor?
2: On.
1: <laughs> yeah, the mayor of Atlanta even came out and um man let's keep it
0: real though back then you know you're you're a special person today but back then there wasn't thousand people doing what you're talking about that was you you were doing your work you know what i'm saying like back then we were we were unique in the fact that we were you know we were blazing a bit of a trail in this music business and and nowadays it's like it's kind of like when i was doing the houston so real stuff i was the only person at like a down south houston concert with a camera, so i was capturing it then people peeped that a little bit and now you can't even get close to a stage anymore with their 600 cameras in like hood clubs where you're just like yo where were you (laughs) who are you (laughs) I mean,
1: it's so true I mean I was definitely was the trailblazer because back then in 1991 to 93 the only other people doing what I was doing on the radio and doing the hip-hop thing was Talib Shabazz Mm -hmm. Randall Moore and people like, and it was before Shaka Zulu because Shaka was on the radio before he managed Ludacris. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it was like, a, it was like five of us. That was it for the, for as big as Atlanta was, there was just five of us making things happen. And, um, yeah, it was a beautiful thing because you really had a chance to shine. And I yep. really had a chance to make a name for myself and, you know, people like Shanti Das before yeah. she became president of urban music at Sony, you know, she was running street teams for LaFace. And she used to bring me my records. She was the one that gave me the first outcast player's ball. And because I blew up player's ball so much, by the time Southern playeristic Cadillac music came out, you can see that they special thanked me in the album. I mean, that's huge. A special thanks to Fiona, because I, you know, blew them up so much in Atlanta and brought them out to shows. And they came on my show several times. And yeah I mean it's really cool to see stuff like that. I mean you can't do that today because it's so such an oversaturated market and there's so many people doing the same thing you're doing.
2: Right. So it's
1: just a totally different scene and different way of doing things now and back then. Wow. I mean it was and a I, beautiful
0: time and I played Player's Ball off a white cassette. Yeah. <laughs> like a white label cassette. The first day I got it. like I was on the first week of my show and I got it in the mail. I put that on immediately and I remember the reaction because you know, the stuff we were playing, it was probably similar, you know, and we were in the South and they had a Southern feel to it. And I would, I, I'm not going to lie. I had a bunch of kids around me at that time who were kind of haters, not haters, but they were more into the East coast, you know, or they were yeah. into classic hip hop. Sure. And I was like, man, what are, and I would play like ghetto boys or I'd play a big mic song or something. Sometimes people would be like, what are you playing that? And I'd be like, oh, yeah. this is Houston. I love this. And I remember putting that tape in playing players ball and all these people, I was like, what are their reaction going to be? And they loved it. They were like, man, who is this? Who is this? (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So those were definitely glory days. But after I left EMI, you know, like I said, it was a little bit crazy for me because it's like, do I go back to Atlanta and, you know, get back into my niche and feel comfortable and do what I did? But then part of me is like, but after that big send off, after that big goodbye party, I'm like, how the hell can I go back to Atlanta? I would have felt like a big,
2: Failure. <laughs> you know what I
1: mean? So instead, yeah. I stayed in New York. And because I didn't have much of a background or much uh, experience, I was like, well, how am I going to get a record gig? Because I've only had one year record job experience like what else can i possibly do i've come from a classical music background and radio mm-hmm. and who's going to put me on the radio in new york the number one market in the world you know what i mean mm-hmm. so i was a little bit nervous a little bit like wow you know sweating you know and and, and uh, i interviewed for a couple of gigs and there was one record company that said you know what love to have you you'd be a great publicist never done pr and they were like we're, we're, we're Something about me, you know, the owner of the company, it was an independent, was like, I feel good about this. I feel mm-hmm. like you are going to be able to just break down doors and, you know, you're not scared, you're not intimidated, and people will respond to you on the phone. You'll be able to make things happen. And I was like, well, I want this job really badly. I promise you I won't let you down. So here's the thing. It wasn't hip-hop it wasn't urban. It was an indie rock label. And I was like, damn, am I going to be doing this? Am what I going to be Zero hour records.
0: I remember that. Yeah. I was like, am I
1: going to be happy doing this? But guess what? It's a job, health insurance, and I can live and pay my rent in New York. So mm-hmm. guess what? I'm going to force myself to be happy. I'm going to make myself happy and make the best out of it. And guess what? I did. Yeah. I blew it up. I had bands like Swerve Driver, The No Twist, you know, Varnaline, yeah. Steve Wynn, Space Needle. You know, some of them weren't as dope. Some were very dope. Mm-hmm. And I killed it. I crushed it. I got my bands in Spin, Rolling Stone, Newsweek, Entertainment Weekly, New York Times. Like, you name it, I did it. And I suddenly became the star publicist. Like, every major label was like, who's that publicist at zero hour? They're getting more press than our major label artists. And, and they tried to steal me away. Like, some of the major labels actually were trying to offer me jobs but they went to my boss and my boss lied to every one of them and told them I was under contract.
2: Hmm. I
1: didn't have a contract. I did not have a contract. This guy would not let me go. Mm -hmm. So I would come in the door and say, listen, you need to pay me more. So finally he kept upping my salary, every year up my salary. And the beautiful thing was, Matt, he allowed me to fly anywhere I wanted. I would say, hey, I want to check out a band in Seattle or I want to go on the road with Varnaline and Space Needle and I want to do, you know, Denver, Minneapolis, etc." He'd let me go anywhere I wanted. He mm. took me to mid m He took me to Popcom, you know, mid Asia, traveled over, you know, all over the world with this Zero Hour Records. I mean, so he really did treat me well, you know. Um, he he did. He looked after me and um, I was just known as the, the hottest publicist in the indie label business like this was between 94 and 2000 or 94 Mm -hmm. 94 and 99 was probably one of the hottest publicists in the business now here's how it switched suddenly my boss was like you know um daniel glass i'd heard was starting up a company with doug morris you remember doug morris
0: yeah i know the name
1: yeah, he, um, I think he's still the president. You know, everything switches so fast in the, rec- in the major label business. But I think Doug Morris still to this day is the president of Universal, I think. or I know he was the president of Universal for, mm-hmm. for a long time. Anyway, so Daniel Glass and Doug Morris hooked up in 1997-98 to start a small label. I should say small, but with major funding, obviously, called Rising Tide. Mm-hmm. And at that time, Rising Tide was looking for a roster, They were looking for talent. And Daniel Glass and I were still in communication because even though I was let go of EMI, he also was let go as the president of EMI. So, you know, we still stayed in touch. He started this Rising Tide. I called him up and I said, Daniel, you need to come and look at what Zero Hour is doing. We have some amazing things on the plate and I think Rising Tide could really benefit from this. Mm -hmm. So sure enough, he came over, met my boss, Ray McKenzie, who was the owner of Zero Hour, and uh, and and you won't know who Ray McKenzie is. Nobody does because he came from Wall Street. He mm-hmm. was a guy from Morgan Stanley, had a lot of money, and wanted to start a record company. Uh, anyway, now he's back on Wall Street. You know what I mean? So, the, a lot of those cats at the time did. They were investors that wanted to get their, you know, feet wet and saw the music industry as a glamour business and just wanted to be a part of it. Those many, were the days. Many, yeah, those,
2: exactly.
1: <laughs> so you know, so I love you know I have no bad, no ill feelings for Ray McKenzie. I mean, he definitely gave me. A lot of, you know, experience took me around the world, really took care of me for the six years that I was at Zero Hour. So when we ended up with Rising Tide doing the deal, it was a closed door, six hour meeting between Ray McKenzie, Doug Morris and Daniel Gloss. I was never in that meeting, never privy to any of it. Next thing you knew, shake hands. They ended up doing something like a $10 million deal. And guess what? I saw $7,000 of that. Mm. My boss was like, Fiona, thank you for this deal. I'm giving you $7,000 bonus. Mm-hmm. I wasn't very business savvy at the time. I, sh- I took that money and was smiling all ears like, thank you so much. What I really should have been like was, are you kidding me? Seven mm-hmm. grand? I should be getting $150,000 for this deal. Mm. But I was none the wiser, Matt. You know what I mean? I was 26, 27 years old. I... I just didn't have my business together. You know, I was a musician, a DJ. I just didn't know that part of the business, right? So I took my seven grand. I was happy. And I said to my boss, though, all right, here's my seven grand. Thank you so much. But you know what I would really love? I'd love to start my own label. Mm -hmm. He's like, you know what, Fiona? You can do whatever you want to do. He's like, what do you want to call it? I said, three, two, one. Three, two, one, zero hour. He's like, you got it. And the first thing I did was put out a compilation. And the second thing I did was sign Black Blackalicious. Right. And it goes on from there. Black Blackalicious, Rubber Room, Scheme Team, you know, Sea Rays Walls, um, Atmosphere. The list goes on and on and on.
0: How did you connect with Black Blackalicious?
1: Well, I put out this compilation, which was called Connected. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that as a DJ? Do you remember Does that? Did it
0: have that? a microphone as on did. the cover?
1: It was um, TC5, Dante TC5 did a graph a graffiti piece. So it's like a all it's sort of a mural album cover that has all the artists okay. connected to this globe with yeah, their I remember that. with I their headsets, that. with their with their um, earphones.
2: Yeah, I have that. Yeah. For sure. So
1: yeah, so on that connected album was the first new Black Alicia song, Latif was on there, The Angel, Cockney Odiah, the first new ultramagnetic MCs, Badawi. I mean some really great, great songs but my whole idea for connected was connecting the musical dots in urban culture so it was everything from trip-hop to electronic to a little bit of house to reggae to dub and Mm hip-hop but with the core element being we're all connected like musically this is rooted in urban culture right and it was critically acclaimed and we we had a lot of amazing reviews and a lot of mainstream press and for the most part we sold about Seventy-five thousand copies, which isn't bad for a compilation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what it did was, the way I marketed marketed it was, Black Alicious really took uh, saw that and realized, wow, you got you know, I love the label, I love what you're doing with three, two, one. You know, Black Alicia's at the time was with DJ Shadow and mm-hmm. really didn't have a label behind them. They had Soul Sides, which later became Quantum, but Soul Sides didn't have any money behind them. And they were on uh, MoWax in the UK. And right. MoWax was just like, you know, a one-off, just a UK distribution deal. It wasn't sort of a album signing, you know, and they were kind of free. So they love, you know, we were building a relationship with Connected and the way I found them with Connected was from Soul Sides. I just love their music. I, I love what they were doing. So there was no email at the time. I think I tracked them down by calling up, you know, Gab or Excel. I forgot who I talked to first. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if they had management. And, you know, they gave me a new track for Disconnected. And like I said, they love the way I work. They love my hustle. They love my drive. They just loved everything about me. Mm-hmm. So I flew out to Oakland, met them at the studio. They were in the studio called Pajama Studios. Mm-hmm. That was their spot in Oakland. And I got on high. Yeah. <laughs> we uh. smoked a lot. And next thing you know, flew back to new york and got a contract to them and uh offered them a deal to do an album uh and he actually an ep and an album mm-hmm. and the ep was a to g yep and the album was near man <laughs> and the rest is history yeah history. 321 just started selling so much like a shitload of records just flying out of record stores, mama pops, major chains, virgin and tower at the time like you couldn't keep those records on the shelves. Hmm. And next thing you know, you know, Fiona B 321 was really kind of on the mouths and ears and eyes of all the uh the whole indie hip hop movement.
0: Right. But I mean, you had your hand you talked about you said you mentioned the rhyme sayers and stuff like that. I mean, you had your hands in a lot of different movements at oh, that yeah. time. I mean, not just your own label. From what I remember.
1: No, I had my hand in Stone's Throw. I had my hands in, uh, yeah, like you said, you know, the the, the Rhymesayers movement, mm-hmm. uh, Deaf Jux. Actually, yeah. even before Deaf Jux. uh, uh Raucus. Raucus.
2: Yes, Raucus. So
1: at the same time I started 3-2-1, guess what? Raucus had just started. Hmm. Raucous had just put out Black Star and they just put out the Fun Crusher Plus. Right. They just put that out. So here I am with Black Alicious, and here they are with Company Flow and Black Star,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: I was crushing it. They crushed it, and I crushed it. But we were sort of the only indie hip hop game in town in New York: Raucus and Three Two One. Right. That was kind of it. I think. Am I missing something? I mean, actually, we had no, no, no. We had other hip hop labels like you know uh, Sleeping Bag and Freeze and all these you know indie mainstream labels. But I look at those as very different. Cause those movements were very different. Right. You know what I mean? I mean,
0: I I think you know, that when you're talking about the, the the raucous movement company flow and and a lot of the groups that were coming out around that time, man, like that was, they came really kind of out of left field doing their own thing. And and it, it was, I think in a reaction to how, you know, we talk about the industry being saturated now or things being watered down or whatever, like after, you know, 94. And I mean, there were still great years for hip hop. Don't get me wrong. And great albums, but as that business creeped in, it did change, and there was a lot of room for something different. People wanted yeah. something different, and yeah. and people like yeah. Bobito and 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 the the people who were really, you know, also tastemakers in this, they yeah. got on that. You know, they oh, they got on that 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 wave of music, and and it really spread
2: everywhere.
1: Yeah, and thank you for mentioning Bobito, by the way, because Fondulum. Mm-hmm. Fondalum was also around the same time, so it was yep. Fondalum, Raucus. And, and uh, 321. But here's the difference though Fondelum didn't come from any money. Right. Raucus had money and we had money.
0: Didn't Raucus, it, was it Raucus or was it Def Jux that had Rupert Murdoch's son behind them? No, us?
1: honey, no, honey, no, honey, no. Raucus had James Murdoch. Yeah. James Murdoch ran Raucus with Jared and Brian. Right. And guess what? When I was running 321, guess who called me? James Murdoch. Really? James Murdoch called me on the phone. He said to me, Fiona, I love what you're doing at 321, but we can give you so much more. Why don't you come to us? Hmm. Oh, yeah. He came to me and he offered me a job at Raucous. Wow. I turned it down, man. It was a difficult, difficult thing for me to turn down because I knew, I knew in my heart, Raucous was going to be the shit. Hmm. I knew in my heart, Raucous was going to be huge, way more massive than anything 321 could do. I knew it. I knew it. But I felt obligated to me to 321. Now, I started 321, but guess what? I didn't own it. Mm-hmm. I didn't own it. This was zero hours money. Zero hour Ray McKenzie's money. It was just my vision.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: didn't own a piece, nothing. Oof. So here I am running blood, sweat, and tears 321, creating something massive, realizing I had no peace, no stake no equity, no nothing. So here I am turning down a chance at Raucus that would have paid me double Mm. and knowing that that would have been a much huger reputation for me to be involved with. I turned it down because I felt like I was committed to the artist I'd already signed and I just wanted to build something. Even though I didn't have a piece of it, I still wanted to build it. Call me crazy, Matt. Mm. Call me crazy. I had loyalty. I just wanted to build a piece. I just wanted to build and create and just... I just, again, the business, I didn't have, I wasn't business savvy. So I turned James down, you know, Brian and, and Jared, you know, we all became friends, but yes, I turned them down. And then suddenly we were competing against each other, which was crazy because, uh, every time I made a move here, they made a move or they'd make a move and they would think I was doing their thing. And, you know, cause at that time, big just had left company flow. I, there was some kind of beef. I don't know what went down, but just came to me. LP you know, was still doing the raucous thing and just left company flow. And he came to me and he said, Hey, I love what you're doing at three, two, one. I want to work with you. So I started working with him and he started guiding me a little bit on things. And, you know, we eventually put his record out, the big just record, which, you know, I knew was not going to do anything like company flow or LP solo stuff but I still felt like, you know, what it was the right thing to do to have Big Justice's name behind me because Three Two One was the a white female chick doing hip hop. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, and even though I'd already proved myself with the Con- connected album and Black Alicious, you know, to move forward and do the right thing, I wanted to keep it authentic, right? Just be authentic and just sure. work with the right partners or work with people that knew blood sweat and tears live that life Lived the hip-hop culture life e- even though i did i wasn't real hip-hop you know what i mean how could i be you know it was just i was and i wasn't you know you have to how, where do you you have to cross that line somewhere and realize you know making moves and partnerships strategically with people for the right purposes is only going to better you and make you more you know authentic and give you more integrity right, right. so that's that's what I did. I knew I had to do that to grow. But here's the thing with Big Juss. Big Juss was very opinionated, right? Mm-hmm. And I listened to him, but he wasn't the Bible. He wasn't like the hip-hop Bible. And unfortunately, he told me something that to this day I will never... How do I say this? He said something to me that I followed him because, again, I admired and appreciated and respected his opinions and went with everything he said. And because of this one thing he said, I lost probably one of the biggest deals I could have ever had, ever. And Not to say, not to say it would have happened for me, but we were close, was atmosphere.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, I knew about atmosphere when no one else did. I mean, very few people knew about atmosphere in 1998. Very few people. Right. And the reason I knew about atmosphere was... I don't know if it was because of Black Blackalicious, you know, all the work I was doing in California, mm-hmm. but it was one thing led to the next. Like I would go out to California a lot and I would hear Slug. And I was like, what the
0: hell? This
2: yeah. guy
1: is killing it. He's sick. He's probably one of the best MCs in that era I've ever heard.
0: Yeah, I mean, just, people don't even know how his hustle in the beginning and how he was everywhere for a minute, like everywhere. on underground radio, everything. Like the dude really was everywhere. out there. Pushing so himself I flew as out, a like teenage. Oh my
1: god. Yeah, everywhere. So I flew out to Minneapolis because after I heard Slug, I got in touch with Sadiq. Mm-hmm. Uh and I think Jaybird was I think yeah, I think it was Jaybird and Sadiq were with him. Yeah, yep. because because they were just building yeah, Rhyme Sayers was definitely a movement there. Yeah. But nobody had heard of Rhyme Sayers. And they Well had here, a as slug, an
0: aside, I can I can I can describe exactly what it was looking like. They had a huge movement and I'd go see them in Chicago and I live I lived in Chicago in those years. And they would do twelve hundred people, sell out the metro like every three months. And yeah. then I moved back to Houston in two thousand and one and they played the engine room just a couple months later and it was maybe a hundred people there. Like but now they'll sell out bigger places in Houston and Austin and all that too. But that's what they did. They they built their they built it, you know, locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally in that order, and they did it.
2: Yeah.
1: And so check this out. So when I was like, i got to get my hands on slug, I tracked him down and they had just started fifth element, the record store.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and I went to the record store. Oh yeah. That's what it was. So I forget, I think it was 1998, January, 1998 or 1999, January. I forget the year. It'll, <laughs> it's all blurry at some point, you know, yeah. as, you get, as the years go by, it's a little blurry, but, um, I, I flew out to Minneapolis. It was three and a half feet of snow, I kid you not, three and a yeah. half feet of snow. Rented a car, almost killed myself getting there, went to Fifth Element. It was either it was either Fifth Element or a show at the um uh, what's the name of the place they used to play? The uh the uh, element of Minneapolis. Seventh Street. Seventh Street, yes. Or whatever. First Avenue. Yes. For, one of the two, Seventh like, Street or yeah. First Ave. Yeah. Went to their show. It was completely bonkers. It yeah. was like over a thousand people there yeah. screaming, shouting, crying, fans. All girls. It all most women. Girls, most <laughs> girls flipping Dang. over Slug. Yeah. yeah. And uh, next thing you know, I go backstage, meet them, meet Sadiq, meet Jaybird, meet Slug. And the next, and the, the, I see them that night and I say to them, listen. I've got this label. You see my lad with Black Alicious because we already killed it with A to G. Neo was about to come out. I said, I want, I want atmosphere on 321. I want to sign you guys.
2: Mm-hmm. And so we had
1: a serious meeting the next morning at their record store at Fifth Element. And basically, Sadiq was like, We're down. Slug was like, We're down. Let's do this. Flew back to New York, Matt. Kid you not. I tell my boss, he's like, Let's do it. How much are they asking? Let's, let's offer them a deal. Big Just says to me, no way, Fiona, no way. I'm like, huh, excuse me? I, have you even seen Slug Live? Have you seen the group? Do you-? He's like, Fiona, Fiona, slow down. He's like, you don't understand. And this is where, you know, no offense, you know, this is, you know, you-. he's like, listen, Slug is a white rapper. We don't need a, need another Eminem. I'm like, uh, huh. what, what, uh, no. He didn't even realize that Slug is mixed race. Slug was not a white MC. Okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you're trying to tell me we're not signing Atmosphere because we don't need another m M&M? I'm like, you're so wrong here. So we didn't get to sign Atmosphere pretty much because of that. I don't know if I
0: should
1: <laughs> – I don't know if we should edit this part out, Matt, because I don't want to blow up anybody's spot here. I don't want to get – you know, I don't want to piss off just or start a – I mean, but, I don't think
0: it's – I think it's – par for the time that's what that's how we talked that's what we thought about back then and it was a moment where like if you were real serious about hip-hop like you know see i told people when i heard that first that not infinite but the slim shady ep when i heard that tape i was like this white dude from detroit is about to take over rap just watch it's gonna be crazy and i but and as he was ascending you know, I mean, look at it now. Like, I don't want, you know, rock and roll is totally white, practically, man. We don't want that to happen to rap. That was, we were, I I, I would probably have been on Justice's side to an extent back then. Cause yeah. I looked at white rappers like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Now, yeah. personally, for me, I got to see Atmosphere because I just, there honestly, for as big of a city as Chicago was, there was hip hop nights here and there, but there wasn't a ton of shows. And when it happened, and they were like at the Metro or one of the or Double Door or whatever, you would just go, you know. And I was like, all right. Yeah. And the, and back then, what was awesome with with the Rhymesayers and those type of groups on tour, it'd be like Atmosphere and MF Doom and Rubber Room and like LP and like everybody, you know, it'd be like a whole huge show of of like six seven groups, and it would just be a great night. And I remember the first couple of times I saw him, I was honestly, I was kind of like, all right, whatever, dudes, <laughs> you know, more white guys. And then when I saw him with Idea, I was like, damn, Idea's off the chain, rest in peace to him.
2: Yeah, like, he, cool. he
0: really had like a certain yeah. energy and it all kind of came together for me. Just uh, I've kind of became an Atmosphere fan by seeing the, uh, uh, I liked what they were doing more than their, I liked their music in the beginning, to be honest. Like when I saw their effect on the crowd, when I saw that they literally built, their own scene. Like they built their own scene there. It was amazing. That's when I really started appreciating it and I didn't really care what they were. But I mean, I remember back in those days, it was kinda like, man, no, we can't just have every, you know, it was it it, it has gotten out of control. Kinda anybody can rap, whatever, that's fine. But I remember in those days we were trying to be a little protective.
1: Yeah yeah. So so that's what happened. So basically my the deal, you know, was shut, was shut down. So we you know, we didn't do a deal with Atmosphere and I've been kicking my feet ever since. Yeah. Kicking my head <laughs> ever since banging my head. But so Atmosphere and I stayed very much in touch, you know, Sadiq and Jaber, we stayed very very connected. And what started to happen was while I was doing 321, I also started producing a lot of shows in New York and just doing a lot of stuff at South by Southwest and doing a lot of stuff, you know, at conferences all around. So what I started doing was bringing acts like Atmosphere, you know, if I couldn't do deals with them, if I couldn't do record deals, let me at least produce shows with them. Because at the time, Atmosphere had never come to New York. They'd never done a show on the East Coast. They'd never done shows at South by Southwest. So at the time, I was dealing with a production crew at South by Southwest because there was really no hip hop at South by at the time. This is in two thousand. I mean, in uh, nineteen ninety nine, two thousand. There was really no no hip hop, and I was working with a group of kids of uh, guys called Hip Hop Mecca. Yeah, you remember exactly. those guys? Yes, Hip Hop Mecca.
0: So, I was gonna have to. I was gonna have to. If you, if, I knew you were gonna mention them, but if you didn't mention them after saying that, I was gonna have to say something.
1: Yeah. So those cats, Dave and um, Doug. God, I forget the other guy's name. Yeah, Dave and Doug. Right, Dave and Doug. I. Did so much work with them, so I said to Dave and Doug, "Listen, I I want to bring this group atmosphere in because they're sick. I think you'll love them. South by is going to flip out. Trust me." And they did. They trusted me, and I brought them with Rubber Room. And Chuck,
0: uh, Chuck D hosted that show at the back room, right?
1: Oh man, that's right. That's, right. that's yeah. right. That was my
2: show. Yeah, I was there.
1: That was that was legendary. That show, yeah, and that's kind of what uh, kicked off. The hip hop at South By because the South By, everybody at South By from Roland to Brett, you know, rest in peace, all those cats kind of started paying attention to what was going on with some of these showcases that we were doing with Hip Hop Mecca. Uh, So I went with Hip Hop Mecca. Well, kind of, sort of. (laughs) Yeah, well, enough to bring you on board, you know what I mean? Like then they had you come on. So obviously, we were doing something to to set it up at least to, well, uh, I mean,
0: you know, to be honest. There was always. Like some hip hop at South by, you know, I worked with Andre Walker, you know, if you, do you ever know Keir worthy?
1: The name rings a bell. Yeah. Here's
0: more into like Mark urban marketing stuff now. And he was really one of the trendsetters from that in the nineties and he's still doing it to this day, but he was, uh, from Austin, he was the original college rep for Def Jam. And then he ended up just like a lot of us in those days worked kind of street stuff. He did it on a much bigger level than I ever do. He was like the man behind every label getting promotion in Texas. And then he yeah. moved to New York. And at Mm -hmm. the time, like, he had ultramagnetic MCs, and he, like, in the first couple of South By, I started coming to South By in 91, and, like, every year there would be, like, a hip-hop show or something. And then 94, 95, and 96, Andre Walker took over, and I helped him get it together. And, and again, the one year we had one big show, the 94 was, like, the Gravediggers and Mad Flavor and Black Monks and stuff like that and the Mm
2: -hmm. Chaotix.
0: And then 95, we had two nights. And then 96, they had a couple nights and that was when Erica Badu even did an R&B night where, and that's where Erica Badu came solo and really broke out.
2: Oh, wow. And, and okay. after
0: that, I know that this guy T-Double did some, a couple of Yeah, weeks, I worked right?
1: with TW, T-Double as well. Yeah. All yep. those,
0: you know, those yep. years. And then I, what I remember was when you guys and Hip Hop Mecca were doing their thing. It was, that was when I first started getting to see like the visionaries, the rhyme sayers.
2: Yeah. Living legends.
0: legends yeah. Uh, yeah. Those type of artists were, on, you know, hieroglyphics. Yes, yes. You know, and yeah. all those guys started coming to South by, and that really, you know, showed that there was an audience for that. And when I came in, it was really simply because I was like, man, these Houston rappers don't know nothing about South by Southwest. It's right down the street. It's the biggest conference in the world. It's about to go down. They have to be there, you know? Yeah. And that's how I approached South by and did two shows that year. And then just every year just kept plugging at it until they yeah. hired me actually.
1: Yeah. So when we did that huge atmosphere show with Atmosphere Rubber Room and um, gosh, I forget who else was on that. That bill was massive. Um, You know, the place was so, so packed. You know, one thing led to the next. And then we ended up doing as well that week, uh, the first hip hop panel that I moderated that Slug and Jaybird were on. Mm -hmm. Um, So it really kind of bounced, you know, jumped off from there. And then every year I would just bring more and more hip hop. And I was also doing that with CMJ. And I thought, wow, it really jumped off at South By. Let me bring Atmosphere and Rubber Room to CMJ. And, oh, my God, people flipped. And it was their first, you know, Rubber Room's first New York show, Atmosphere's first New York show. We had Zion Eye on the bill, their first New York show. And I suddenly was becoming the person known as bringing hip-hop, you know, hip-hop from around, not around around the world, yeah, that was later, but hip-hop around America, outside of New York, outside of East Coast. I became that chick, that girl that was bringing regional hip-hop To New York stages, which nobody was doing. Lyricist Lounge would never touch that, you know what I mean? And you know, some of these other um entities you know, never went near that stuff. Fat Beats used to laugh at me, like, what the hell are you doing with this crap? Like, when I first brought them Uh Blackalicious and first brought them, you know, Connected and and Rubber Room and and this other stuff, they were looking at me like, why are you you looking at stuff on the West Coast and and the South when you should be looking at all the talent that's here? Like, Fat Beats used to make fun of me. Q Unique from the Arsonists used to make fun of me. They all used to make fun of me and say, you're just some white chick that knows nothing about our culture. Ah. I used to get that all the time, Matt. People from the from New York would say to me, "Fiona, you know nothing about us, nothing." Oof. And I'm thinking to myself, "Oh, really? Just you watch." And next thing you know, you know, Atmosphere, eye and eye you know souls of mischief and all this amazing stuff is blowing up you yep. know and, and i'm thinking to myself who are you telling knows nothing i think i know a little something a little something something, right
0: and then then funk master flex started playing the yin yang twins over and over and things like that yeah. like they, they, everything changed they had to start accepting i was there and i saw it with my own eyes too man when, when new york had to start accepting the rest of the world they just had yeah. to yeah and they didn't back in those 94 days you're talking about man they they did not give a damn yeah. about that stuff
1: yeah so anyway so one thing led to the next Matt so you know after after 321 after signing Black Blackalicious and realizing that I lost atmosphere which I which was a biggest biggest blow to me like you don't even understand I mm-hmm. I think I went into depression for six months after we didn't get atmosphere Oof. and you know we had Rubber Room and that was great but then Rubber Room imploded because they there was some, you know, internal struggles between them, Metamo and Lumberjack. I don't know what went down. But, you know, Rubber Room, in my opinion, could have been the next public enemy really seriously. Like, they had it really going on. And if you went to some of that, if you saw them yeah. in Chicago ever, like, whoa, you know. Many
2: times.
1: Yeah. And I, I know they did really well, you know, it's in Austin. I know they did hugely well in Minneapolis. And, you know, so after Rubber Room, what did I do? I signed, um, as far as, uh, yeah. So I had big just, you know, we put that out. I, you know, I knew big just wasn't going to do so well. I knew it. It wasn't a good album. You know, it just, it wasn't company flow. He didn't, he company flow was LP at the end of the day, right? Company flow, you know, was LP, Mr. Len, you know, big just was cool, but we knew company flow as the other two. Right. Mm -hmm. So you know, Big Just put, we put out this record. It didn't do so well. So here I had this great critical claim with Rubber Room, you know, with Black Alicious, and then kind of everything went weak with, you know, Big Just. And then I put out um, the Nia album after A to G, and that blew up. But right as we put out Nia, unfortunately, you know, uh, Sub the Zero Hour, the record label right. that was funding all my money, all my uh, things and the resources, they pulled the plug. They pulled the plug because Rising Tide, Daniel Gloss and Doug Morris decided to not give us any more money. Just mm. one day, woke up and the money was gone. And you have to understand something: when you're getting ten million dollars, guess what? My boss, not me, I didn't get any money. My boss blew that money on private jets, mm. you know, on you know fine dining, on you know beautiful office space, you know, exorbitant. Uh, signing fees for different artists that they were signing the rock stuff and some of that rock stuff was crap they started to sign stuff that was just shit and it started to be three two one was carrying the company Mm. all my stuff was what was selling the rock stuff wasn't so all of a sudden things were hemorrhaging I and mean, yeah, well, people
0: he- talk about the demise of the music industry and they want to just blame streaming and all this. I'm like, uh, I saw a lot of excess, like, just it- like you're talking about and a lot of idiots. And I'm not saying these people are idiots, but I'm saying like, I saw a lot of idiots blowing a lot of money where it didn't need to be blown. And really that money, if you don't stay relevant and, and keep it hot, you're done. I mean, it's yeah. it, it doesn't you yeah. it know it's not going to last forever. If you you know as you get older, not not you particular, but these labels, you know, they, if they're not sitting there with their finger on the pulse, there's not that money's not yeah. always going to be there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I ended up, you know, the label closed, closed its doors, and it really put me in a precarious situation because all the hip hop artists that I had, you know, they didn't deal, they didn't know that it was Ray McKenzie. They didn't know. I mean, they knew, but they it, everybody pointed the finger to me because I'm the one that's controlling 321. I'm the face of 321. I'm the one. So when the plug gets pulled on, you know, somebody's mastering or the studio doesn't get paid or my band is on tour and then suddenly they have to come home because there's no money, there's no tour support, that doesn't make me look good. Right. So a lot of shit went down and a lot of people pointing fingers at me and it took a long time for me to clear my name, you know, like oh, it was a bad time. It was 1999. When was it? It was like June 1999 till about April 2000. That was probably my darkest days of the business or one right. of the darkest days in the not business. The
0: Napster period. The yeah. Napster period. And it's
1: funny you mentioned Napster, Matt, because guess who offered me a gig when I lost the job at Zero Hour three two, really? Guess No, not Napster, but guess who offered me a job and said, fly out, I'll pay you this, this amount of money. MP3.com. Oh, man. Yep, (laughs) mp3.com. This was the internet boom. So, mp3.com, they were waving this beautiful salary in front of me. I had no idea what this internet boom was going to bring us. I didn't even realize what an mp3 was at the time or what the internet was really going to do. And I turned that job down. I turned that job down. I could have moved to San Diego, you know, could have had a plush salary. But anyway, instead, I decided to just, uh, you know, deal with my depression and, and, and hide away from some of these people that were trying to find me and kill me, <laughs> oh, kill. Man. Just, you know, you know, people, know were how it is, yeah. people were after me for money. I, you know, zero hour owed so much money to so many people that I was signing and had artists, you know, in, at bay and on the road. And I couldn't, you know, I had no money. I couldn't pay anybody. So finally people realized it wasn't me. I mean, finally, you know, I wasn't going to have death threats and people, mm-hmm. you know, blackmail me for money because they realized I had no money. Right. So at the time, I found another uh, Wall Street guy that, uh, do you remember a magazine called Stress?
0: Of course. I wrote IS for stress.
2: stress.
0: I wrote for Stress. Well,
1: yeah. Well, Ket, his name was Ket mm-hmm. Allen at the time, had put me in touch because he saw all the great work I'd done with 321. Mm-hmm. And we did some advertising with Stress. We did advertising with Ego Trip, with Stress, you know, with, uh, uh, a lot rap pages, you know, a lot of the cool magazines at the time, cause we had advertising budgets. Right. So I developed all these great relationships. So Ket from stress put me in touch with this guy called Peter Lupoff who wanted to start a record label. He came from Bear Stearns, wanted to start a record label and we had a meeting and I brought just into the fold, big just. Cause mm-hmm. again, I didn't want to be that white chick coming to a, another white, you know, Wall Street mogul and say, let's start a hip hop label, right? You know, even with my track record. So brought Juss into the mix and together the three of us started Subverse. Right. Remember that label? Yeah, of course. So that started in 2000, Subverse. Uh Very short lived label, but we had an incredible track record very quickly because the first thing we put out was we reissued Blackalicious Nia. But we did it as a joint venture with MCA, because at the time, the A&R director of MCA, Tom Sarig, wanted to sign them. And he wanted to put that record out first. And I'm like, you can't put that record out first. That's my record. That's my album. And he's like, well, do you own it? Do you own the masters? And because, you know, Zero Hour had folded, we didn't, you know, we didn't really have the masters because that label went to nothing. It There was like no... I think Ray McKenzie didn't hold on to any agreements. I mean, it was, it was such a mess, Matt. So in theory, we didn't have the masters, but they wanted to be cool with us enough because Black Blackalicious really did say, Fiona did all this work for us. You know, they gave us all this money. You know, in her defense, we need to do at least a joint venture. Right. So luckily, Tom Sarag and MCA agreed to that. So the first thing we did to jumpstart Subverse was the MCA slash Subverse Music Nia album. Hmm. And it sold close to 200,000 albums within like the first two months. Amazing. So we definitely stayed afloat with that. So not only was it Bear Stearns' money that invested in the company, you know, to start this label, but we did have an instant income revenue coming in. Right. So with that, guess who we signed next? Who was that? MF Doom.
0: That's right. So
1: Doomsday KMD Black Bastards. Right. And the rest is history.
0: <laughs> Man, well, we're coming up on an hour pretty quick here. and no,
1: this, part, this podcast should be like part one, part two, part three. There's can, so much, I don't know what it is. There's going.
0: a lot. Yeah, we can we could definitely do a part two. And uh, I want to talk about what you're doing now, because what I've been following you in the last, you know, however many years, I've, I've noticed you've moved on a lot more internationally. Yes. with artists from abroad and taking other artists abroad and things like that. Can you tell me a little bit about where you're at right now?
1: Yeah, so I've been doing these international hip hop showcases. Um, I started doing, you know, a little bit of them at South by Southwest, and it went over really well, and then started doing them every year at CMJ, and then did them at A3C. Um, And again, it's just giving international artists a voice and a platform in America, because let's face it, you know, hip hop was birthed in America. And, you know, there's ghettos in, in every city across the world. And there's people authentically doing hip hop in every country. But their dream is to make it or to explore and be introduced to where their influences came from and where it was born and where it started. Mm-hmm. So if it wasn't for me, a, a lot of these artists would never have had their dreams or being able to fulfill their dreams or even have intros into the American market, especially years ago. I mean, now, you know, more and more people are doing it like sway, you know says you know the the mtv sway you know says that he's doing international hip-hop and you know you see some of these labels like um ti who signed tiny tempo or you know some of the labels that are claiming okay well we're doing you know british hip-hop or we're doing international hip-hop but really i was the first one to actually do it the first one to bring a to give them a voice to bring them to you know these conferences such as the CMJs in the South by Southwest of the world. So there's many artists like Cyan Supercrew from France, you know, Emma from Brazil, uh, you know, uh, Aloe Black. I mean, even though Aloe Black lived in L.A., still he was a Panamanian MC. Right. And he was never, you know, he might have been doing shows in L.A., but he'd never really done any shows in New York. So I was the first to give him, you know, a space and a venue to do a New York show. I mean, I'll never forget that. I'll put, I put him on the Cyan Supercruise show at SOBs in 2005. At Aloe Black in 2005, nobody knew who the hell he was. I knew him because I used to meet him at South by Southwest every year. Yep. He would just kick it at South by he barely get shows at South By. He would just be, you know, a fan for the most part, going to every party and schmoozing and mingling. And Aloe and I used to get drunk at all the parties. I mean, we, we built a relationship based, based on getting drunk, you know? And next thing I know, I had the Science Super Crew show at SOBs. I wanted to keep it authentic. I was like, you know, they're a French group. I'd love to put Aloe Black on. And then Mr. Metaphor from... Uh, uh, Brooklyn Academy, mm-hmm. uh, he emceed the show because Mr. Metapol's French. He's a French MC. Mm-hmm. So here he was emceeing the show. He did a little thing. Aloe Blacc uh, opened and Science Supercrew. So yeah, that was his first jump off in 2005 and the rest is history for Aloe Black. But there's so many artists I brought from overseas. Uh, you know, I, I brought uh, some Korean rappers. I, I did something huge with Project EAR, which was from Thailand, Cambodia, mm-hmm. And the Philippines that was at CMJ a few years back. Um, I've done stuff with, I mean, God, there's so many international hip hop groups I've given. So, I mean, Sway from the UK, yep. I took him to South by Southwest. And if it wasn't for me doing South by Southwest with him, which I worked with you on that, I remember, mm-hmm. he met Chameleon Air through that. Yeah. If it wasn't for South by, he would never have met Chameleon Air and all my work we did with that. So, Chameleon Air, you know, put him on the map, helped put him on the map, and then, you know, from there I put out all these other, you know, Shorty Blitz I would bring out here, Jaguar Skills. Um, gosh, I mean, there's so... Italian rappers, uh, you know, a couple of Japanese MCs, some German rap. I don't know. i forgot right. There's such a long laundry list of, of international MCs that I brought over to America that have credited me for being you know, for bringing them to America for the first time and giving them a stage and setting them off with a whole bunch of introductions after that, because then they would do Eclipse's show and the halftime show. And, you know, some of these, uh, you know, taken through fat beats and make all these introductions. And, you know, they would have never have had that otherwise. So I've done a lot of I call that community work, because between you and me, I mean, I never really made any money from that. It was all branding and just really wanting to be the first to, you know, kind of create community and, and, and build and just give opportunities. So, you know, that was branding for me. And at the time I just started the bloom effect, Mm -hmm. which is my, you know, one-stop shop PR branding special events company that I've had for about seven years now. So I really started doing the international hip hop about seven, you know, about seven to eight years ago. Right. Yeah.
0: And I think that's why we've always been down because Definitely keeping it real, and definitely have kept your f- kept your feet in this industry through thick and thin, through good and bad, and always just kept it real with the art. And that's something we definitely respect about you, Fiona, for sure. Yeah,
1: thank you, thank you. So th- I may not have had an inflated bank account, or at least not yet, but at least I can. Uh, at least I know I'll leave a legacy behind, and at least I know that I've, you know, created a lot of of opportunities for. God, hundreds, if not thousands of people, collectives and, you know, communities really around the world. And that to me says a lot. And I can sleep better because of it. So, For sure. And I think we definitely yeah. do
0: need to do a part two. You know, uh, I want to yeah. talk. I want to dig more into this whole international scene. I mean, I, it's definitely kind of a goal of mine. I, you know, we talked. I think the first time you heard about my podcast is when I interviewed Chan from Barbados. Yes.
2: <laughs> and I had and just you, you
0: had just worked Barbados. with
1: her. Yes.
0: Which is crazy so- how, you know, even like with our relationship with Roxy Cottontail and how many times our paths have crossed just naturally.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, we, uh, my God, and not just Roxy Cottontail, but, Cottontail, but what about uh, DJ's, uh, uh, well, the, the whole chopped and screwed movement. Uh, I had done some things, you know, a couple things with the uh, Mike, uh, Mike. Watts? My greatest, yeah, with Mike Watts. And then uh, I remember when I had my, well, not that I want to blow up how old I am, but I remember Roxy Cottontail did my birthday party at Sway, right? With um, uh, what's his face? The the cat from uh,
0: Houston, the DJ. Wait, uh, was it Rapid Rick? Yes. Yeah, we yes! did a lot. We, we had fun, Those were fun times, man. Yeah,
1: we and we did a lot of parties. Yeah, so you, you, and me, and Roxy used to do a couple things together.
2: Yep.
1: Uh, and then, and then I knew you from some, we did some other stuff together too. I, well, A3C, we, never, we talked about doing stuff together right. at A3C, that never happened. But, but like you said, our paths always crossed. Yeah, it was, it was at South by, it'd be A3C, it'd be you coming to New York, it'd be me coming to Texas. Then, um, you know, maybe I'd see you uh, internationally in a couple places, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, crazy. It's
2: crazy. It's
1: such a, it is a small world. It's a big world, but a small world.
0: It's just real cool to get these stories out there, I think, man, because people don't know how much work went into this. And I think a lot, I mean, I know for sure back in the Houston days, people were looking at me like I was making money and I was like, uh, they'd be like, why aren't you taking us to wherever? I'd be like, we bought our, we all bought our own plane tickets. You want to go holler? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, You're not going to buy a plane. You're not going to spend a nickel on this. So you let me know when you're ready. <laughs> exactly. You know,
1: Matt, there's so much more to talk about because there's my days at Subverse, you know, not just MF Doom, but the days at Subverse. There's my Subversive School, yep. which was my production company, you know, and even after that, I worked at, you know, even before Subverse or after Subverse, I then worked with uh, a TVT, head of international for TVT. So Yin Yang Twins and Little John talk about Full Circle, but they became my. My uh, my roster and Pitbull yeah. got his start at TVT. So I saw the very That's beginnings right. of Pitbull. So, I mean, there's so much more to talk about. I feel like, wow, you know, for the hip hop thing, even though these days now I'm doing more of the rock stuff, I feel yeah. like, you know, there's so much more to talk about with hip hop. And I am, you know, dabbling back in hip hop again because I want to get my international hip hop festival basically kicked off in 2017 oh and that's another God. story so
0: well, we got to work together on that and there's we definitely have to have a part two let's do that yeah. you know and yeah. and no <laughs> offense to anyone out there when I make this statement but I'll tell you straight up I, this I've never finished a two-hour podcast listening to it in my life you know what I'm saying so that's what okay. that's the only reason I think we keep it at a good hour that's yes. real talk we could do more we could call each other anytime you want to call me I'm here yeah. we could do this yeah. I mean, I you know, we can connect. Man. I know, you know, you're on the road a lot and stuff, but we could, we definitely do need to do a part two because there's way more to talk about. And I yes. want, you know, I feel
1: like we barely tapped the surface. Oh, man. Uh,
0: man, no, we've really. I mean, you know, I I think what's important is a lot of stuff you talked about from those beginnings of independent hip hop. Yeah. Man, like when that stuff yeah. was really happening. Yeah, uh, that's that, that stuff still translates today and there's a lot of things I see that the majors are doing like fake in, fake independence there's a lot of, we can talk about that I, all right. these people who say yep. they're independent but they're really actually backed by majors
2: yeah and there's yep. so many
0: things going on right now that like the kids today have kind of a you know it's a different business it is but well, it's also the same there's also a lot of the things that we did before you still have to do and right and there's,
2: and there's, there's some,
1: also these uh, days the manipulating the views the views the follows the likes the comments which back in the day was payola. You know right. what I mean? So we've got a new form of payola now. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. For yeah. sure. Well,
0: if people wanted to get in touch with you or do you want to give them any contact info or where they can find more information sure. on the Bloom Effect and then we will schedule – we'll definitely do another talk.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you can reach me at Fiona, F-I-O-N-A, at thebloomeffect.com, T-H-E-B-L-O-O-M effect.com You can also call me. I will pick the phone up, believe it or not. 646-764-0004. I'm all over socials, on Twitter, at Fiona Bloom, on Instagram, at Fiona Bloom. My website's www.thebloomeffect.com.
0: Man, thank you so much for your time. And let's get this going. We'll get a scheduled another talk within the next day or so for real. We'll, we'll get oh, part we'll two up that. real quick. We'll get part yeah, two up. And then, I, and then you gave me a lot of food for thought. I can sit down and uh, maybe, I mean, you know, I've got a lot of things I want to ask you about oh. just from these last few minutes.
1: Great, great. Well, maybe this also uh, inspires uh, us to work together down the road. You know what for I mean? Sure. Like we need to collaborate on something. We've known each other too long. We're like-minded individuals, creative, talented, passionate. We need to be doing something together.
0: It's true. We need to do that.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you, Fiona. You have been tuned into Pusher Mania's podcast. My name is Matt we just had a great conversation with Fiona Bloom that we are going to continue on in a part two real soon. Keep tuning in on iTunes and at SoundCloud.com slash Pusher Mania, all that stuff. It's out there on the internet, and we uh, do appreciate any likes, listens, shares, any of that stuff. Spread the word. Tell a friend to tell a friend, and we will be back at you shortly.